Hi, you're listening to the EU China podcast powered by the EU China Hub, straight from Brussels, a show on which we interview important actors in the EU China relations and cover the top EU China news. Our mission is to help you to get a more nuanced picture of what is going on in the EU China relations. My name is Greg Stetz and I'm happy to have you with us. If you like our show, don't forget to subscribe and to tell your friends about us. Let's get started. Hello everyone and welcome back to the second part of our interview with Jacob Gunter. Jacob is the Policy and Communications Manager at the European Union Chamber of Commerce in China and the lead fan of the recent report on the involvement of European companies in the Belt and Road Initiative, The Road Less Traveled. If you haven't listened to the first part of the interview, you can find it on our website euchinahub.com or by searching for EU China Podcast on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast or Spotify. In this part, we discuss EU's connectivity strategy and its relation with BRI in third country markets. Jacob also offers some predictions and recommendations for the future development of the two connectivity initiatives. Once again, I highly recommend checking out the amazing report, The Road Less Traveled, which we'll be referring to on the show. You can find a link to it on our website. And now, let's get to it. So we discussed the ways in which the Belt and Road Initiative affects the operations of European companies in third country markets, but we still have to talk about the EU's connectivity strategy, uh, which many regard as the EU's response to BRI and a channel to promote the European way for connectivity. But it does seem that since it was announced in September 2018, not that much has been going on, and we've seen uh, the cooperation with Japan on the issue, and with China, there was a launch of this joint study uh, in search for economically viable rail connections in Eurasia by DG Move. But it does seem that it took almost a year to agree on the definitions for this study. So I want to ask you, what is your take on connectivity strategy and in what ways is it important or does it have an impact on European businesses abroad? I'd actually start with the awareness or rather the lack thereof about the connectivity strategy um, and the connectivity plan specifically being announced um, September of 2018. Ironically, the last time that we were here in Brussels. Uh, since then, as you said, there's been a little bit of progress. The EU also was able to bring um, Japan on board for a lot of it. Um, and we, we certainly welcome that. The issue is, is that, um, frankly, not that many people really are aware of the connectivity plan. We included this in our survey. And we found more than half of our members were not aware of the EU connectivity plan. And of the remaining members, um, it was about 10, 12% said that they were aware of it and engaged in it. And the rest were only aware of it. They had read about it. They had heard about it. They knew generally something about it. Whereas everybody knows about the Belt and Road Initiative. I hope she doesn't listen to this, but my grandmother has heard about the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, you know, I, I have family members back in Colorado that have heard about this that generally don't pay that much attention to international business and politics and such. But they, they know there's a thing called the Belt and Road Initiative. It's a big infrastructure development thing, and it's a China project. And I think that says a lot about the, the power of that marketing and building that awareness. Whereas, again, connectivity what? So I, I think that's the first step is is really clearly defining the the vision of the connectivity plan, but most importantly to to market it and frankly to to kind of just get going on it. 
you know, the, the Belt and Road Initiative kind of came out of nowhere and very wildly exploded onto the world stage. And I think a lot of the more, I guess, negative stories that came out of the BRI came started in that period. And a lot of that I, I would chalk up to the lack of experience of a lot of Chinese officials and Chinese companies in third markets. You know, you look at uh, the port that was built in Sri Lanka, that looks like a big China port that you know, would fit perfectly well somewhere along the coastline in China, which has this giant market of 1.4 billion consumers to consume goods and 1.4 billion workers to produce goods. So there's demand for that big kind of port for that kind of market and many of them. I don't think that kind of demand exists in Sri Lanka, but if you're a Chinese official or a Chinese diplomat or a Chinese business person and everything that you've ever done related to infrastructure has been China big, and you start going out and Sri Lanka is identified as an important BRI country, you might just uh, drop that in there thinking, ah, this will work just like it did in China. And then you realize that there aren't nearly as many people um, and the, the conditions are not quite the same. So in that way, you know, the kind of explosion of the BRI initially was a challenge and then the Chinese learned very well from it. The fortunate thing is the EU doesn't have to go through that experience because the EU has a very long history of doing this both within and without Europe. I mean, the story of the European project is one of connectivity. Um, it's all about breaking down the barriers for people, for capital, for goods, for ideas. Um, nobody has done connectivity better than Europe. That's by definition. But as well, you know, Europe has been very deeply engaged in a lot of countries around the world in infrastructure development for a very, very long time. So it has the capacity, it has the experience to build on. So. It now just needs to make the decision to actually get moving on it. I'd also add that there are a lot of very unique things that the EU connectivity plan can bring to the table. There are world-class standards um, and quality. There are strong protections for environmental and financial sustainability, for the feasibility of these projects, all the things that make um, these projects work so well. Albeit sometimes this is uh, unfortunately a, a bit too slow, but I'll speak to that in a second. But... Europe also has the ability to provide not just the hardware, but the software. And this is something that we've noticed as a big weakness in the BRI is, um, let's take the, the railway connecting China and the EU as an example. Nobody can build a railway quite like the Chinese have across Eurasia. And that's potentially a valuable tool, potentially a valuable um, logistics option for, for some companies. The problem is, is that uh, there hasn't been very much focus beyond the hardware to look at the software. So looking at how to align customs, looking at how to align safety standards in the different countries that this railway passes through um, could really expedite that train trip. And right now, you're talking about a 14 to 16 days, depending on where in China you're shipping to where in Europe you're shipping, or vice versa. And 14 to 16 days is about half the time as what maritime shipping would take. But several of the, the people that we interviewed indicated that if China was able to align all of these standards along the entire railway, and if they could run across these borders, not necessarily completely uninterrupted, of course, you know, but if, if they could move much, much more smoothly, they could cut off two, three, four days of that. And suddenly rail shipping stops becoming an option that takes half the time of shipping by sea and instead becomes a third of the time. It also becomes valuable because if you're shipping from an inland place in China to an inland place in Europe, it becomes uh, considerably faster than the maritime option because you don't have to first ship to the coast, then ship it across the world, and then ship it from the coast into that inland destination. 
but again, without that software approach, it really limits the value of, of something like the railway. And by doing so, it decreases demand, hence the need for all the subsidies. So this is something that the EU can really bring as, as a competitive advantage because, again, it's done it within the EU, but it's also done it within the European neighborhood more broadly. And helping build that capacity and align those standards seems to me like a, something that really increases the value proposition of the EU connectivity plan. But again, it needs to, the most important thing is to start moving on it. <laughs> Sure, but I guess there is also the wider question of the value proposition on the European side, because those projects that apply European software, uh, that uh, apply European standards, they very often involve a lot of procedures, a lot of paperwork, and high standards, quite frankly, very often mean high prices. Yeah. So it's also a question of how realistically is it an attractive offer for some of the developing countries that are interested in getting things going quickly and in a cost-effective way. So is the connectivity plan an attractive alternative to BRI from the perspective of developing countries? Yeah, yeah. This is kind of a core question as to the ability for the EU connectivity plan to compete with the BRI. And those standards are incredibly important to making sure that projects are going to last and provide the the quality that's necessary but i think you're right that if if that drives prices too high it scares away countries that would otherwise be ready to you know take out some of the debt to help finance this or do all the amount of work that it takes to get multilateral development banks involved and to get european financing involved whereas you know china as as i said earlier is already offering a one-stop shop through its sort of vertical integration of its state-owned enterprises. But you look at the speed at some of these projects being built, and you're talking about railways being built in one or two years and bridges in a couple of years, things like this. And I don't think Europe can be China fast, but it needs to not be Europe slow in order to build that competitive edge. Because let's say you're in a sub-Saharan African country and you have the financing or you have the funds, you have the, a strong enough economy to be able to confidently take out the financing through, you know, the connectivity plan or development banks, even if you have all of that ready to go and you're confident for it, if you're a politician in that country, in a democracy, for example, you need to be able to deliver results in a relatively timely manner. And if the European choice is to take 10 years to do that and the Chinese can come along and do it in two years, it's a pretty natural choice to make, even if, you know, you you'd prefer the standards uh, it doesn't matter because if you're going to be uh, going through an election in three or four years, then you know it, it's not necessarily that great to take out that debt to finance something 10 years down the road. And that's where we need to look at how Europe can close the gap and not completely close it, but how it can, it can mitigate it. So looking at ways to, pardon the, the, the awkward language of it, but to standardize the standardization process and to streamline all of these things. So how can we make sure that feasibility studies, environmental impact studies, sustainability studies, et cetera, are done in a way that isn't taking several years to complete before you can even break ground on these projects? What are ways that we can streamline those efforts? But also, and I hear this from a lot of uh, those same banks that are in some of these countries helping to kind of arrange and facilitate the Chinese companies going into them for these BRI projects, is that Sometimes there are limitations to the capacity of the local officials. And if you look at the, frankly, the mountains of paperwork that need to be done and the, the amount of oversight that needs to be prepared and such, 
a lot of these smaller countries in particular, they don't have the manpower for it. They don't have the resources or the expertise necessarily. Or even if they do, if there's a very credible alternative with the BRI right there that is a much more simplified, streamlined process, that again enhances that value proposition of the BRI. So looking at ways to to help build capacity, to help simplify you know, the application procedures and such for these things, whatever we can do to simplify that and make it easier for especially the, the, the least developed countries and the smallest countries to, to do that. And that could be perhaps facilitated by European diplomats that are there. That can be facilitated by officials in the EU that, you know, go out there and help to do that. There, there, we, we see plenty of opportunities that are not extremely expensive or resource intensive to, to help make sure that can happen. Yeah, so it seems that Europe's standard superpower is, at the same time, it's kryptonite. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good way to put yeah. it, yeah. Um, so so let's maybe move to the recommendations section. And uh, let's talk first about the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, so BRI seems to be facing um, some of an image issue globally, with uh, a lot of questions also raised about its sustainability, uh, about its visibility. And we touched upon many of those issues already today. But... What do you think would help BRI to have a more positive image among international businesses, and especially talking from a perspective of European businesses? I think a lot of the uh, very negative perspectives on the BRI, particularly the the more political and geopolitical ones, looking at um, you know calling it a debt trap or calling it a way to build vassal states or likening it to the the imperial tributary system of the Ming Dynasty, some of these more interesting takes. I think in in many ways, that's driven by the lack of participation from the international community, and not just from companies, but from multilateral development banks, um, from the UN, from from a lot of these these multilateral groups, and so providing that involvement and and not just saying that they're involved, but really giving them important roles and letting them help bring their expertise to the table can really help drive away some of the the more skeptical perspectives on it. But frankly, also making sure that there are equal opportunities for non-Chinese companies, including, of course, local companies, to make sure that they have a, a, an equal chance to participate in these projects. And we, uh, we were actually called out by the Chinese mission to the EU about this not too long ago. I believe the, the wording they used was that uh, European companies cannot expect to receive windfalls from uh, the BRI. They instead need to actually put effort into to getting these. And, you know, they're, they're not wrong in that, of course, European companies can't just expect for BRI projects to magically come to their lap or that there would be some sort of, I don't know, quota of the, the percentage of involvement from foreign players. But European companies are competitive. They're ready to win some of those competitions they also are probably going to lose some of those competitions. Again, nobody does infrastructure quite like China does. And we would expect that Chinese companies would continue to be very, very strong in this in this area. But the the profound lack of involvement is strange and drives concerns and drives suspicions. So, you know, let the best company win as, you know, public procurement is intended to be. It's It's interesting. You don't really often hear about you know, Europeans saying like, oh, these projects that the Japanese run, we can't get involved in them. Therefore, it's debt trap diplomacy in Southeast Asia because Japanese ODA programs are very much open to foreign participation. And, and so, you know, you look at the, the different schemes from different countries and their 
they're kind of multilateral development banks that they sort of lead a bit. And there is open competition, so you don't see those kinds of complaints. And you don't really hear that much about the non-competitive nature of them because everyone's kind of open to participating in everyone else's. And so you win some here, you lose some there. That's the norm. And European companies aren't afraid of that kind of competition. They do it in competitive markets in North America and East Asia and everywhere in between. So we're eager to, to add the BRI to that list of fields of competition. Moving on to the recommendations for the EU. So BRI is very often linked with the increased activity of Chinese businesses in Europe, with a flurry of FDI, which peaked in 2016, with 17 plus one, which uh, causes a lot of anxiety, especially in Western Europe and in Brussels as well. And how should the EU respond to BRI and generally speaking to Chinese companies going out to its domestic market? Because there are a lot of discussions about the potential impact of market distortions. Uh, Huawei case recently also sparked a lot of discussions about the security concerns related to sensitive sectors. So how should the EU, in your view, respond to those challenges? First and foremost, the EU needs to look at the kind of toolkit that it needs to be creating, because the last thing that we want is for the EU to start to look more like China, in as far as kind of building a, in many ways, protected market um, for a lot of uh, the industrial heights or the commanding heights of the the economy. So, whatever tools we put into this toolkit ought to be precise, ought to be targeted, and the the way we often provide imagery for this is. We don't want a wall, we want a shield. You know, a wall is something you put up and it stops everything from coming in. Um, a shield is something that you take and you put it in front of the things that you are worried about and you let everything else go by you. So there are so many private Chinese companies that are eager to invest in Europe, to build factories, to provide jobs, to provide services, and frankly, to bring a lot of new technology that Europe doesn't have, that, that European consumers would love and that would enhance people's quality of life. And that should always be encouraged. You know, we should always be skeptical of the potential for state-backed and state-directed financing, even in private companies. Um, but making sure that, you know, investments um, that follows market forces and that brings good things for Europe should always be welcome. Um, whereas, you know, maybe having a shield that is uh, focused more on where the state-directed financing and state-owned enterprises are coming in and bringing their distortions in, because... You know, for a long time, China's big SOEs were a China problem. They're now becoming a, a third market problem and even a Europe problem. Now that the EU has finally gone through the process of really intensely reforming its own SOEs and to now have the, the, the market distortions brought by the, the behemoths coming out of um, China, I, I think we've referred to them before as industrial hegemons, that they bring their distortions into the EU because of the EU's openness, which again, doesn't call for a wall, but calls for shields. So investment screening, uh, tightening that further and giving giving a better toolkit to to the authorities that, of course, needs to follow due process and rule of law, but also looking at how we can make sure that not only within the EU are these market distortions not, not coming in, but how can we mitigate the distortions in third markets? And also, how can we make sure that European companies can compete with the scale that China's national champions bring into these third markets? So something like the International Procurement Instrument um, is a very valuable tool to, to try to mitigate distortions in third markets, as well as within the EU. And it's great because it's a tool that takes selective negative reciprocity 
in order to push for positive reciprocity in third markets. It's not a tariff. It's not a, a quota. It's not some some very blunt instrument that is just meant to protect the local market. It's meant to to be a tool used for leverage to open up other markets so that the tool is no longer needed in the first place. Also, things like you know a lot of the, the kinds of rules and regulations within the EU, specifically regarding competition law. Europe's competition law is perhaps, if not absolutely, the, the strongest in the world, and that's good for Europe, and that's good for Europeans. Um, the problem is, is not everyone in the world is playing by these same rules, and that's not just China as well. You know, as an American, I'm frustrated that America has forgotten what antitrust rules mean um, <laughs> regarding some of our own national champions over there. But within, within Europe, the competition law framework is, is precious and should be upheld and protected. But we can't be naive about how it limits the ability for European companies trying to compete in third markets. And frankly, we don't have a great solution to this. Uh, we are thankful, though, that we have uh, very competent people running competition right now. Vestager, I mean, if there was anyone suited for that job, it's going to be her. And uh, we're eager to, to see that kind of move forward in a way that protects competition policy within Europe as much as possible, the benefits that it brings, while also recognizing the very real concerns that come with some of the the kind of non-competitive practices coming mainly out of China, but frankly, out of the United States as well sometimes. <laughs> so these are the kinds of steps that need to be taken, but by far the biggest is get that EU connectivity plan moving. On top of all of that, again, uh, to avoid sounding like I'm kind of naysaying too much, the connectivity plan ought to be very much conditionally, but ought to be open to looking at, you know, how can it interact with not just the BRI, but Japanese ODA, the American, Japanese, Australian Blue Dot Network, all the different schemes of the multilateral development banks, ASEAN, India, everyone has their own sort of program. And there's no reason that we can't look for overlap between these, but that really needs to be conditional. And again, there, there are great pieces of leverage that the EU can provide thinking again back to that idea of European software enhancing the hardware that's being built by other countries. What a great tool of leverage to be able to say, oh, well, we're quite eager to, to work together between the BRI or the ODA or whatever on these connectivity-related issues, uh, and we have something very unique that we can bring to the table. But we're only going to be involved if you make sure that our companies have not a guarantee, but a fair chance and a level playing field to participate. And again, everyone benefits from that kind of situation. And just to wrap up, if you were to take your best guess, uh, what future do you see, what future relationship do you see between the BRI and connectivity strategy? I think it really depends on, A, whether the EU can actually get the connectivity strategy and plan up and moving. And again, in many ways, the connectivity strategy, more broadly speaking, already has a lot of moving pieces. And you know, maybe the EU, frankly, should look at how China retroactively called a bunch of infrastructure projects around the world BRI projects, and suddenly it enhances the, the allure of the BRI. The same thing could be done with uh, the connectivity plan. Not out of some sort of attempted deception, but just kind of saying, oh, well, the first thing we're going to do with the connectivity plan is we're going to look at everything that we do connectivity related and put it all into one big basket so that we can better understand what we're already doing and you know what else needs to be done. So if the EU can get it up and moving, then the relationship between the, the BRI and the connectivity plan becomes a question about what China is willing to do. And if you look at and compare the first Belt and Road Forum and the second Belt and Road Forum, you see two very, very different perspectives. 
you look at uh, President Xi Jinping's speech, the first one, it's all hurrah, hurrah, look at all the great things that we've done, look at all the money, look at all these incredible ports and railways and bridges and such. And it's, uh, it's looking back at how big and great and wonderful the BRI is. His speech at the second Belt and Road Forum is much more focused on the future. The BRI needs to become more open. Uh, it needs to become more transparent. There needs to be more of a focus on sustainability, both environmental and financial. So there was a big shift in rhetoric. Whether that shift in rhetoric really produces different results remains a question. Um, and it remains a question that, frankly, we won't know for a few years because the, the nature of these kinds of projects is that we don't know what their outcomes are until they're finished. <laughs> so, And even beyond that, we don't really know their outcomes. But I think the, the biggest metric will be how involved European and other foreign companies can be. And if China kind of pursues that, I, I see a, a very positive relationship between the BRI and the connectivity plan. But if it doesn't do that, then at best it would be competition in the areas um, that are not contentious. So, you know, straight head-to-head -head competition on railways, on port facilities, um, things like that. And maybe, you know, especially with something like the 17 plus one and some of the BRI projects within the EU and or in the, the kind of neighborhood of the EU, in more contentious areas, and again, telecoms is the contentious area of the day, if we can't see a convergence between these two plans, it then becomes a bit more of a confrontation, which of course is terrible news for business, is bad news for everybody. So uh, hopefully the messaging that we heard from President Xi at the last Belt and Road Forum manages to, to help really make a shift there. And hopefully we, we see similar things you know, at the next one, and that ultimately that leads to opportunities for European companies. Jacob, thank you very much for a really insightful talk. It was great to have you on the show. Yeah, uh, again, thanks for having me. And I guess anyone who wants to read the report themselves, they can find it at our website, along with our other reports. Hopefully uh, readers find it interesting and insightful. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the EU China podcast. If you want to know more or to get in touch with us, visit our website, which is euchinahubwrittenjointly.com. And if you find this show insightful, be sure to leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. It will help others to get to know about us. See you next time.